You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323 by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 11, given on January 11, 1921. We now have laid the most essential foundations for a study of certain celestial phenomena and also physical phenomena, needless to say, only from a certain perspective. We've characterized the great and important polarity within human nature, the contrast between the organization of the head and that of the metabolic system, including the limbs. As you'll readily understand, we have to disregard the constitution of animals for the moment. As we've seen, if we wish to relate the human being to the cosmos, we have to assign the metabolic system to what's of the earth, what stands in a relationship to us that's radial in its orientation. Furthermore, we've seen that we have to assign the formation of the head to everything that derives from the great sphere that sends its lines of influence, as it were, from the celestial sphere toward the center of the earth, even as the radius reaches outward with its lines of influence to its surroundings. We saw this concretely in the construction of the typical long bones or tubular bones in contrast to the cranial bones, which are spherical, or like a spherical sector. Envisaging this difference, we have to begin by relating it to what appears to us in the relationship of the earth to the celestial sphere. Of course, you are aware of the scientific consciousness of our time, departs from what a naive person, untouched by any learning, would judge of the appearance of the celestial sphere, the movements of the stars upon it, and so on. As you know, we call this the, in quotes, apparent aspect of the celestial vault. Over against that we have a paradigm, an astronomical paradigm, gained in a fairly complicated way by interpreting the apparent movements, and so on. Since the great changes in cosmology of the Copernican era, we've become accustomed to viewing celestial phenomena in the light of that paradigm. I take it to be widely understood today that this picture of the world cannot correspond to absolute reality. We no longer can maintain that what's presented to us by this picture, say as the planetary movements or as the sun's relation to the planets, is the true form of the underlying reality, while what the eye beholds is merely apparent, EYE. I hardly think any competent person would adopt this standpoint nowadays. Yet such a person will still have a feeling that she at least gets nearer to a true conception when she progresses from the apparent picture of the celestial movements, caused by all kinds of illusions within real and factual observation, to the interpretation of it by mathematical, empirical astronomy. 
The question now is, do we really gain a comprehensive view of the phenomena in question if we base our paradigm solely upon this usual kind of interpretation? As we've seen, when we do so, what's really happening is that we're basing it solely upon what our heads ascertain, so to speak. We base it on the aspect that reveals itself to our powers of observation, aided perhaps by optical instruments. But as we saw, for a more comprehensive interpretation of this worldview, we have to take recourse to everything that humans can know. To that end, we emphasized how the human gestalt itself has to be viewed in the light of a true science of metamorphosis. Then, too, we had to bring to bear both individual human development and the evolution of humanity as a whole. We can't look for enlightenment regarding certain celestial phenomena until we let our knowledge of human nature aid us as much as observation and calculation. So, let us presuppose what we elaborated in the foregoing lectures, a kind of qualitative mathematics derived from the human gestalt and human development themselves. With that in the background, let's take our start from what meets the eye, E-Y-E, from what is called the apparent image of the heavens, asking ourselves how we can find the way to the corresponding reality. So let's ask ourselves, what does the eye behold? What do we learn empirically by simple observation? Then we can try to fill in the picture with what's given by the whole human constitution, viewed both morphologically and developmentally. What's initially apparent to the eye when we observe what are usually called fixed stars? No doubt I'll be repeating things that most of you know well, yet we have to call them to mind. For only by so doing, only from the facts as seen, taking them all together, shall we be able to form concepts. So, then, what do we see as to the movement of the so-called fixed stars. We have to consider longer periods of time, since over short periods the canopy of fixed stars presents practically the same image year after year. Only when taking into consideration longer epochs do we find that it no longer presents the same uniform picture. Rather, the whole configuration changes. We can envision it by taking one example what we shall find in one region of the heavens would be found in other regions too. So take this constellation then, which you know so well, the Great Bear or Big Dipper in the northern sky. Today that agglomeration of stars looks like this, see figure one. Acquaint yourselves with the minute displacements of the so-called fixed stars which have been ascertained and which agree with what is shown by very ancient star maps, although the latter are not always reliable. Sum up the minute displacements and calculate what the constellation will have looked like very long ago, and you get this appearance, figure 2. You see, the individual fixed stars, so-called, have undergone considerable displacements. About 50,000 years ago, if we may reckon it by extrapolating from the minute changes observed, the constellation will have looked like this. If we continue to sum up the ascertainable displacements for the future, 
assuming, as we surely may do, that they will continue at least approximately in the same direction, we can conclude that 50,000 years from now the constellation will have roughly this appearance. See figure 3. Just as this constellation changes in the course of years, for we have chosen it only as an example, so do the others. Thus, when we make our drawings of the zodiac, for instance, in its present form, we have to be clear if we're calculating and using time in our calculations that the appearance changes. Therefore, we have to regard the celestial sphere as undergoing changes within itself, continually changing its configuration, changing the aspect of the starry heavens, which we behold in the fixed stars, though the continual change is scarcely perceptible over shorter periods. Naturally, our observations here cannot go very far, nor can we do very much by way of interpretation, although, as some of you will know, modern experiments enable us to ascertain even those movements of the stars which are along the line of sight, toward us or away from us. Yet it remains very difficult to interpret the unchanging aspect of the starry heavens. The further course of our considerations will show to what extent this interpretation can have any humanly significant value. Having considered the movements of the fixed stars, now let's inquire regarding the movements of the planets. The movement that the planets exhibit is indeed complicated. The movement we observe is such that if we follow the path of a planet, insofar as it is visible, we see it moving in a curve of peculiar shape, different for the different planets and different too for the same planet at different times. From this we have to take our start. Take, for example, the planet Mercury. Precisely when it's nearest to us, Mercury's path exhibits a peculiar form. It seems to move across the heavens in a certain direction. If we study it daily when visible, we see it moving thus. But when it turns and makes a loop, and then goes on as I am showing, see figure 4, it makes one such loop in the course of a year. In the case of Mercury, we are usually able to observe this phenomenon at the beginning of each year. So we can call that the movement of Mercury to begin with at least, so far as observation is concerned. The rest of the path is simple. The loop occurs only at the one place. Moving on to Venus, we have a similar phenomenon, though somewhat different in shape and form. Venus moves onward thus, then turns and then moves on thus, see figure 5. Once again we find just a single loop in the course of the year, and again it's at the time when, presumably, based upon other astronomical concepts, Venus is nearest to us. Now to Mars. Mars has a similar path, only flatter. We can draw it something like this, see figure 6. In this case, you see, the loop is more compressed. But the appearance is still clearly a loop. Often, however, the path both of this and other planets, is so formed that the loop is effectively untied, flattened out to such a degree that it no longer exists. Thus one might say that it's merely a loop-like orbit, see figure 7. We'll disregard the planetoids, interesting though they are, and look at Jupiter and Saturn. We find them also describing loops or loop-like paths, 
Again, they do it when nearest the earth and only once per year. As a general rule, they make a single loop each year. Now, we have to consider first certain movements on the part of the fixed stars and then the movements of the planets. Judged by our standards of time, the movements of fixed stars exhibit a gigantic periodicity. The movements of the planets comprise a year or fractions of a year and reveal from time to time strange deviations from their ordinary path, looping lines of movement in effect. The question now is, what are we to make of these two kinds of movement? How to interpret the looping movements, for example? It's a very big question. Only the following reflection can lead toward any kind of interpretation of the looping movements. In all our human observation, it's abundantly clear that we relate in completely different ways to our own condition and to those things which are not our own, which take place apart from us, outside us, so to speak. You need only recall the enormous difference between your relationship to any object of the so-called outer world and to an object inside yourself, in which you are one with your own inner experience, as it were. If you have any object before you, you see it, you observe it. What you yourself are living in, your liver, your heart, even your sensory organs to begin with, these are things you can't observe. There is the same contrast, though not quite so strongly marked, with regard to the conditions in which we are living in the outer world. If we ourselves are in movement, and if it is possible for us to remain unconscious of how we bring about the movement, then we may well be unaware of our own movement and therefore leave it out of account in judging outer movements. That is to say, though we ourselves are in movement, we leave this out. We deem ourselves at rest and envisage only the external movement. And just that is essentially what underlies the interpretation of celestial phenomena. You know that the following argument has been made. Humans move, of course, together with the corresponding point on the line of latitude upon which they are standing, but remain unaware of that movement, and instead see what is happening outside them as a movement in the opposite direction. This principle has been invoked in countless ways. The question now is, how might this principle perhaps be modified if we take into account that there is a real polarity in the human constitution. Our metabolic systems are structured, quote, in a radial sense, close quote, if I may put it so, and the systems centered in our heads are structured, quote, in a spherical sense, close quote. If it were then a fundamental feature of our own motion that we relate ourselves differently to the radius and to the sphere, this fact would have to make itself felt somehow in what appears to us in the outer universe. Imagine that what I have said to be in some way true. Suppose, for instance, that you yourself were moving thus, see figure 8, so that you were describing a lemniscate. Let's assume, however, at the same time, that the lemniscate you were describing was not exactly like this, but that by variation of the constants a form of lemniscate had been created in which the lower branch didn't close. See figure 9. So, let's imagine that by varying the constants, 
were able to create the surface of the earth, see figure 10. We would have to draw somehow in relation to the earth what passes through our limb systems and then in some way turns, goes through the systems in our head and then returns back again into the earth. Say, you could truly inscribe such an open lemniscate into the human constitution. We would be justified in saying that there's an open lemniscate of this kind within our human constitution. But now we have to ask whether there's any real meaning in such talk of an open lemniscate within the human constitution. And the answer is yes. All you need to do is to study the human constitution in a way that's genuinely morphological, and you'll find that this lemniscate, or some variant of it, is inscribed within the human constitution in multiple ways. The only reason why this isn't widely understood is because the matter hasn't been studied systematically. I encourage you to try it. As I've said before, all we can do here is give some indications for further work but those indications should be pursued energetically. Try it. Investigate the curve that arises if you trace the middle line of a left-hand rib, then go past the junction into the vertebra, then turn and go back along the right rib. See figure 11. Take into consideration that the vertebra exhibits an inner structure that's fundamentally different from that of the ribs. And then bear in mind the consequence that as you describe the line rib, vertebra, rib, not quantitatively but rather qualitatively, you have to take into consideration inward growth relationships. Then you'll understand the morphology of this entire system by means of the lemniscate, by means of the loops that are formed. The farther you rise up toward the structures of the head, the more you'll have to undertake drastic modifications of this lemniscate. You'll reach a certain point at which you'll be required to rethink something that has already been foreshadowed in the formation of the sternum, the junction of the two curves here, see figure 11. You'll have to think about them as having been transformed, but you obtain a metamorphosis, a modification of this lemniscate form when you rise up toward the head. If you study the whole human figure, above all the polar opposition between the nervous and sensory systems on the one hand and the metabolic systems on the other, you get a lemniscate tending to open out as you go downward and to close as you go upward. You also get lemniscates, though highly modified, with a one loop extremely small, if you follow up the pathway of the afferent nerves through the nerve center and outward again to the termination of the efferent nerves. If you pursue it properly, you'll find this lemniscate inscribed everywhere within the human constitution. Then, take the structure of the animal with its manifestly horizontal spine. You'll find it differing from the human gestalt in that the lemniscates whether the downward loop be opened or closed to some extent, are far less modified, less varied, than they are in humans. Moreover, in the animal their planes are more parallel. 
whereas in humans they can stand at sharp angles to each other. This is a tremendous field for research, a field that calls on us to extend the morphological element ever further. Only when you arrive at such things do you begin to understand people like Moritz Benedict and many others like him, whom I have often mentioned, and who had wonderful intentions in many fields, really wonderful intentions. You can read about it in his memoirs. He regretted profoundly that there was so little opportunity to speak to physicians from the point of view of mathematics, to bring mathematical ideas to bear within medicine. In principle, he is quite right, only we have to extend our thinking even further in such matters. Ordinary mathematics, based as it is on rigid forms, calculated within a rigid Euclidean space, would help us little if we tried applying it to organic forms. Only by seeking, as it were, to carry life itself into the realms of mathematics and geometry as such, by thinking of the independent and the dependent variable in an equation as being subject to an organic and inherent variation, as illustrated yesterday for the Cassini curves, variability of the first and of the second order, only thus shall we make progress. If you take recourse to this kind of help, immense possibilities will be opened up. We have an indication of that already in the principles applied when constructing cardioid or cycloid curves, so long as you don't treat them in a rigid way. If you apply this principle, the inner mobility, as it were, of the mobile in itself to nature, if you try to introduce this, quote, mover of the mobile, close quote, in your equations, then you'll find it possible to enter mathematically into the organic realm itself. Then you'll be able to say, it really is possible to talk like this, that the axioms of rigid space, space immobile in itself, lead to an understanding of inorganic nature. But if you conceive a space that's inherently mobile, or equations whose very functionality is in itself a function, then you'll find the transition to a mathematical understanding of organic nature. But this is actually the method that should accompany the efforts now being made to investigate the transitional forms, the gestalt that leads from inorganic to organic nature. Those efforts are worthless as they stand, but such investigations hold immense promise if pursued in this expanded way. Take now the presence of the loop-making tendency in the human organism and compare it with what confronts us admittedly in a more irrational form, in the forms of movements of the planets. Then you'll realize the, in quotes, apparent movements of the planets, as they're usually called, inscribe in the most remarkable way as forms of motion in the heavens something that is a gestalt, a fundamental figure within the human organism. Minimally, we have to correlate at least provisionally, this fundamental figure within the human organism with these celestial phenomena. And then we'll be able to say to ourselves, if we observe the loop, we see that it always appears when the planet is near to the earth. Or, in any case, the loop manifests when we ourselves have entered into a particular relationship to the planet 
with regard to our situation on the earth. Of course, we have to refer it back to our own formative life, our embryonic development. But if we simply consider the position of the earth in its yearly course and our position on the earth, then we find that we're alternating between a position relative to the planet, wherein we turn our head toward the planetary loop, and a position wherein we take leave of the loop and at length turn our head away from it. Thus our stance toward the planet as we develop is such that we alternately expose ourselves to its loop and to the remainder of its orbit. We can, therefore, relate what lies nearer to our head to the loop, and what belongs more to the remainder of our organism to the planetary path outside the loop. And now add to this what I said before. I asked you with regard to the morphological relationship between the tubular or long bones and the cranial bones. Try to imagine how you'd have to draw it. You'd have to draw it in such a way that here you have the radius through the long bones and then when you transition into the cranial bones you have to turn like this, see figure 12. If you project this turn in relation also to the earth's movement outward into the heavens, then indeed you get a loop and the rest of the planet's path. If we develop a feeling for morphology in the higher sense, we can only ascribe the human gestalt to the solar system. Let's turn now to the movement of the fixed stars. These movements of the fixed stars will naturally have little bearing on the particular movements of the individual human beings. But if you think, on the other hand, of the whole evolution of humanity on earth, and if you bear in mind everything we said over the past several days about the relationship between the sphere and the formation of the human head, then you'll be compelled to bring the metamorphoses of the celestial aspect into some kind of relationship with the evolution of the human soul and spirit. Up above us on the vault of the sphere above us, are spread out only that part of the movements which corresponds to the planet's loops. Indeed, it would seem at first only a part of the loop. See figure 13, dotted line. In the movements of fixed stars, the rest of the path is omitted. We see here this tremendous difference. The planets must somehow correspond to the whole of our human nature, the fixed stars only to what forms our heads. And here a perspective opens up, showing us the way in which we must interpret the loop. We human beings are in some way together with the earth. We find ourselves at some point on earth. We move together with the earth. We can only refer what appears to us as a projection upon the vault of heaven to the movements we ourselves are making together with the earth. For as we move together with the earth itself, again we must project this backward to embryonic life, to the time of embryonic development in our life. As we move with the earth, what is within us comes into being, formed by the very forces of movement. In the movements which we see as apparent forms as we approach the loop, we have to recognize the cosmic movements we ourselves are performing in the course of the year.
we have to see that the loop here always remains open below. Even in its apparent aspect, we don't get a closed form. That arises only when we consider the entire orbit. I am relating all this to you so quickly. You have to reflect upon it in detail and try to see the different things in relationship to each other. The more minutely and scrupulously you relate them, the more you'll find that the planetary movements are, to begin with, mere reflections. We'll see eventually how a synthesis arises from the individual planetary movements. The planetary movements are reflections of movements you yourself execute together with the Earth in the course of the year. Once we have synthesized human nature as a whole, then we can view the projection of the human constitution onto the cosmos. And we can see that the true form of the Earth's annual movement is the loop curve or lemniscate. We'll have to study all this more closely over the next few days, but at this stage we're already led to conceive the path of the Earth itself as a loop curve, entirely apart from its relation to the Sun or any other factor. And then we have to regard what's projected for our perception as the planetary paths with the loops they make, as the projection by the planets of the loop path of the Earth onto the celestial vault, if we may formulate a very complicated set of facts so simply. As to why, when the planet draws near the loop, we have to leave the rest of the path open during a relatively short space of time, the reason lies in the fact that under certain conditions the projection of a closed curve may appear open. For example, if you were to make a lemniscate, say of a flexible rod, and project the shadow of it onto a plane, you could easily make it so that the projection of the lower part appeared divergent and unclosed, while the upper part alone was closed. So the entire projection would become not unlike a planetary path. You could construct the likeness of a planet's path simply with the figure's shadow. The end of Lecture 11